Hey, you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's go. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. Today, this is going to be a great episode. This is Zach Shiner, and uh, I have the pleasure of being with Joe DeBose. Joe, how are you? I'm great, Zach. How are you? I'm great. So Joe and I, we actually, uh, we trained together. We were back at SC together, LA County back in the day, maybe one of the greatest trauma training programs in the world, yeah? Yeah, just don't say the year. You don't want to date both of us here. That's true. That's true. It was a while ago. But anyway, since then, Joe has just done incredible things. He has gone on. I mean, you are a part of so many different trials. The, how prolific you are in the literature is, is actually quite amazing. A man has to have hobbies. I should have taken up fishing. <laughs> so, so yeah, so Joe's a vascular surgeon. He's also a trauma surgeon. He is at Shock Trauma, and he's published in, I mean, you know him probably best from Reboa. And he's done vascular problems with aorta injuries. He's done trauma resuscitation. Basically, anything with, like, an acronym in, this, in the trial, I think Joe is associated with it. <laughs> <laughs> I love my acronyms. All vascular surgeons do. But today, we're not talking Reboa. We're not talking vascular injuries. I want to ask Joe today about a question that many of you have been asking me for quite a while. And that is, what about the distal perfusion catheter? And how do we go about doing that? Um, yeah, you know, I think first, it, it, we, the DPC is a great option. Theoretically, it makes a lot of sense. If you think about this from a full spectrum per perspective, you kind of have to first define what is, when you're talking about, in particular, AV ECMO. Right, VV, this is not an issue. We're talking about AV elements, in particular, putting cannulas. The best data is in the femoral catheter, obviously, uh, the femoral artery, common femoral artery, actually. So what's the actual risk of having malperfusion episodes? And there's a, several studies on that that have looked at it and tried to define this. Um, if you look at the Hanover study, it was 7.5%. Uh, the biggest and largest reference you're going to find out there probably is the UCLA Systematic Review, which defined... Um, limb ischemia events at 17% of people. So, um, and, and this reached a full spectrum from amputation rates, which the literature would suggest is between one to 3% to those that you're going to have to salvage or be able to salvage with a fasciotomy, removal of the catheter, and maybe thrombectomy, other limb salvage procedures. So if, if that's the baseline risk, then what does, um, how do you do it? And how does, a distal perfusion catheter, um, you know, mitigate some of that risk. So the mitigation is pretty impressive when you look across the literature at people that utilize it. Um, the Hanover study uh, from this path from 2019 here, uh, in patients who had distal limb perfusion, malperfusion or distal limb perfusion catheters, malperfusion of limb occurred in 3.4% uh, and without it, 21.4%. And that large series I talked about from UCLA in 2017 was actually a 15.7 um, absolute reduction in the incidence of mm -hmm. limb ischemia. So it, it, it certainly appears uh, to be beneficial, but is it beneficial for everybody? You do introduce a little bit of risk because you're introducing another catheter into an artery, right? So um, it helps, I think, to try to think about who's going to be most at risk for malperfusion events. And a couple of groups have looked at that in, uh, out of uh, Taiwan and New York and other places. And some of the factors, depending on the study you look at, are a little different. But the consistent ones are known peripheral arterial disease, 
older age appears to be consistent in some studies, but so does younger age. Uh, older age because they're more prone to atherosclerotic disease and downstream flow issues, and younger age probably because they have smaller diameter arteries. Uh, and certainly the size of the sheath plays a role. So if you encounter any of those issues, probably if you have the capability, placing a DPC is a very reasonable and appropriate thing to do. Uh, it may be appropriate for everybody, but we don't have the perspective randomized study to say that. Um, I think you should consider it certainly in anyone that you can do it and, and having that capability mitigate some of that risk. Yeah, I mean, this this is the super frustrating thing, right? You do all of this work, you do the eCPR, you get them to the hospital, you have the medics trained, they did good chest compressions, we had bystander CPR, we put them on ECMO, we sent them upstairs, and then they die because they become septic from gangrenous leg. And that that is just unbelievably frustrating if that's happened. And that, and that has happened to us. So, yeah, as far as deciding which patient... Yeah, kind of the verdict is still out. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the case. I think that people who do it do a lot of it, and people who don't don't do as much. And then there's a subgroup of people who say, and there's still some studies out there that have looked at this. Actually, I, I'm not going to put it in initially and prophylactically, but I'm going to monitor that limb closely. And if there's the first sign of malperfusion, I'm going to put that DPC catheter in. And some people have gotten good salvage results with that, and and that may be a very rational way to approach things. The challenge is you've got how are you going to monitor that limb and determine if they're developing malperfusion that's not inherent to the other things going on. You have somebody on VA ECMO. They're likely on pressors as well. They're very sick. They're very peripherally vasoconstricted. So the only thing you can really have is comparing the limb that's not cannulated to the limb that is. And both are likely to have diminished arterial flow. So I think having a protocol that's pretty stringent and has short windows of ev between uh, subsequent evaluations to detect malperfusion early if you're not going to use a distal perfusion catheter is really kind of paramount to success. And having the capability to subsequently uh, jump in pretty quick and place that catheter if needed uh, is going to be your goal to success for those patients. Um, that's another area that needs to be studied better i.e. placing them at the time of cannulation versus doing them in a delayed fashion. You know, it's something that needs to be studied. Yeah. So we, I'll, I'll tell you how our institution goes, and this is just also show my limited experience with this. We have gone down the road of just putting one in everyone. In fact, we've actually gone down to specific sizes and things of where we, how we want to put them in because we have had frustrating events in the past. Now, in our setting, in the ER, we actually don't put them in. And maybe this is something that we should change, and this is part of why I, I'm interested in this topic, is how other people are doing this. We actually have our interventional radiologist or our cardiologist, if they're going to the cath lab, put these in in a slightly delayed fashion. And you just mentioned about sort of the unknown about when the timing of this needs to happen. Uh, those, are, those are big questions in my mind. Yeah, and, and I, I, you know, it, it would, I think, be useful. I don't know that we capture the granularity as well as we could with the existing ECMO databases. And maybe that's something that needs to change because um, certainly limb complications are captured, but the specifics about whether DPC was used, how long after initial cannulation it was utilized, uh, what type of and size of distal perfusion catheter and where it was placed and why you selected that patient for placement – all those things, I think, moving forward, hopefully someday we'll learn to capture that better and really get smarter about it. Yeah, okay. So let's go through the nuts and bolts. Tell me, in, how would I go about putting in a distal perfusion catheter and what are the kind of the pitfalls in doing this? 
Well, there are a variety of different types of uh, catheters. Obviously, it starts with the easiest way to go about doing this is to utilize a, a cannula that has a port capable of providing another, an additional lumen for distal uh, perfusion catheter, and those are out there. So having that capability is important. Um, how you're going to access and, uh, d- uh, the vessel to place it. If you're placing, some people, you know, you still have to place through open cut down at some, in some instances and expose the common femoral artery to place a cannula, or some people still do that. And if that's the case, then you have access right there at the common femoral or immediately at the superficial femoral, and you can actually just stick a needle, Seldinger technique, and place a, an additional catheter and then hook it to your cannula. Uh, if you're not going to do that, ultrasound is well-described, um, and a variety of other techniques that people have utilized to confirm they're in to the distal uh, arterial tree uh, including the use of ultrasound, of course, and uh, microbubbles have been described uh, by folks. Some people use fluoroscopy to access the vessel instead of ultrasound. I think you have to rely on uh, your local capabilities. I think ultrasound is probably the, the clear way, in my mind, winner in terms of how to access the vessel safely. Regards to size of catheter, I'm going to put in there, and I think all this should be done under Selinger technique. If you're doing it percutaneously, that just makes sense. But the size of the catheter, again, not well-established, not well-studied. I've seen people use very small, from five French uh, up to much, much larger. Here at Shock Trauma, I wish we had a, a documented protocol that was consistent across the board, but it's not because we use it in so a variety of so many settings. The envious thing about you guys and the way you use it in the ER is that you've got a team that's well-trained. You're, you're like a NASCAR pit crew. I mean, I've seen how you have developed this and operated on it. Everybody on that team is trained. Everybody knows what the next step is and what the decisions are for cannula size, access. Uh, I wish we worked that way in every instance here at Shock Trauma, but because we have different team members uh, in different environments, be it the OR, our cardiac ICU, our lung resuscitation unit, down in our trauma resuscitation area, some of it's dependent upon provider preference, and and that – you know, probably is not the optimal way to do business. I think your model is probably more designed for success in that regard, whether it's choosing distal perfusion catheter sizes and practices or cannulation methods. So I actually totally forgot one part of the introduction. So Joe was just our keynote speaker at Reanimate 6. And, uh, and you know, Reboa was out of this world at Reanimate 6, thanks to you. So super appreciative. But you also got to see a little bit how we do run our codes through the ECMO system. Well, it was a great course. I, I loved it. I came back re-energized for the utilization of ECMO. I told you about a case I had a couple of weeks ago with a profoundly hypothermic patient that underwent CPR for three and a half hours and came, come back, and is now uh, extubated and getting and moving towards physical therapy. So, um, and I thanks to that course, I, I thought about it, you know, earlier, and it uh, it was pretty interesting. That that is so amazing. I mean, three and a half hours. I mean, I, I, when I first read that, I was like, no way, uh, and yeah. that's that's just fantastic. I was beside myself, impressed because I mean, literally, fine v fib asystole for three and a half hours until we got him warmed up. So, and we actually went to ECMO later than we tried all the earlier traditional methods that you read about and hear about in ATLS, and even a a fancy central venous warming catheter, and it took ECMO. VA ECMO to get him to that level. So pretty impressive. I was impressed. That's crazy. Okay. So I'm an ER doc. I'm in the yep. ER. I am. I just put somebody on VA ECMO. By doing saying a Seldinger technique and an ultrasound, I can find that common femoral artery that I've already placed 
a, let's say, 17 French arterial catheter in, and then stick a wire going down that vessel. Is that correct? That's correct. There are an alternate strategy would be to cannulate distally. I've seen people certainly do it at the level of dorsalis pedis even, right? The whole point is to get some flow below the obstructing, presumed to be obstructing or near obstructing cannula, right? So get into that arterial tree wherever it's easiest. And some people prefer the dorsalis pedis because if you miss or it gets boogered up, as long as a patient has adequate posterior tibial runoff to the foot, the, the risk may be less than sticking the um, SFA. Now, that, that is how we do it. We actually use the posterior tibial to cannulate, but we do do the distal uh, on the extremity. And I do have some questions for that. So we usually push the catheter pointed proximally, I believe, and this will allow for perfusion of the entire leg. Is that well, right? And then the foot just kind of gets the, the leftover from the, the extra size of the vessel? Yep, and you know it's it's all it's all based upon adequate you know, normal arterial tree and adequate collateralization, right? So, if you're doing retrograde from the posterior tibial, you may get a little bit flow that comes around distal to the foot, but I, really what you're banking on is flow that goes back up the posterior tibial, comes to the popliteal or tibial perineal trunk, and goes down the other side of the foot, and then retrograde feeds the thigh as well, right up the up the popliteal and the SFA and all the branches thereof around the knee and, and into the thigh. So if you, but if you don't have those, so what do you do in a vascular path? It's really, you, you really don't know for sure, right? So that's one of the challenges is, uh, and you've probably encountered this, trying to cannulate the posterior tibial in somebody who uh, maybe has a, the telltale signs, right? A scar in their groin from a previous vascular procedure, a scar on their chest from cardiothoracic operation, which, or cardiac bypass, which goes hand in hand. Um, diabetics are at a higher risk for peripheral vascular disease at those distal levels. So all those fling- things play into your thought process and your potential for success with distal perfusion catheters. Okay, so we have the option of going posterior tibial dorsalis pedis. In that yep. place, what size cannula would you use? Well, you know, the, the, it will take up to, I don't know there's a magic number, but I, I think a micropuncture works well, up to a five and a six French perhaps even. Okay. But a lot of it's going to be dependent upon body habitus and the size. It's going to be very different for your 15-year-old, uh, small 15-year-old girl than it will for a 70-year-old male. Okay. So uh, on, on hand, I'm going to have a five French micropuncture kit that I can cannulate one of those two vessels. If I'm using the groin, if I'm using the femoral artery, what size, just as a top of the head, what would we use? I think it'd be pretty similar, five or six French. You're not looking to restore flow that's going to be consistent with what they would normally see without a, you know, a 22 or 24 French sheath in their artery. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just need enough flow to preserve function in somebody who's going to be sedated and not moving. And I think five to six French, being consistent with what you have available is probably a pretty reasonable practice. Five to six French sheath will probably get the job done. Uh, I've seen people use bigger. I've seen people go as low as five and up to, you know, even eight or uh, I don't know if I've seen a 10 or 12, but I'm sure someone's done it before. I don't th- I think that might be overkill relative to what you're looking at in terms of the risk benefit ratio. But I would say anywhere from that eight to five French range would probably be ideal, but not a lot of data I'm operating on. I'm kind of pulling this out of my left colic flexure a little bit in my own personal experience. Okay, so last uh, variable in here. Now, I've seen in Paris when we did it, and we did cut down and we inserted them, they have uh, coiled catheters. Is that, do you think that's necessary or is that uh, an optional thing? 
I don't know. You know, um, I actually haven't seen those. What do you uh, describe for me? The coiled uh, element, like you know how the ECMO catheters have, are coiled so that they don't kink. Uh, yeah. The if we were to just use a micropuncture kit, traditionally I would not have coils in there, and I would my fear would be that it would kink. But I, uh, what is this? Uh, is it a necessary thing, or is sort of like uh, more most of the time would just won't kink? I think you, you do have to pay attention to those things. They're not like rigid, flimsy, and they're they're smooth than the, the uh, cannula you're going to use for ECMO or other tubes. So you do have to pay attention to keeping them in line and preventing kinking. I think one of the reasons that they li- like to use the French ones, I'm hypothesizing here, is that with that coiling, it, if their hypothesis, it, it may be more resistant to kinking. They're also transporting these people in kind of interesting environments and uh, in some challenging circumstances where they're not able to monitor all that as well. So maybe it mitigates the risk, but I don't know of any data and whether it's really necessary in the in-hospital environment. But you do have to pay attention to making sure that those cannula are not kinked because for smaller diameter, if you do kink them for a little bit, they're going to be prone to thrombosing off, and that's going to be problematic. Okay. Got it. Okay, so let's go back up to the uh, the femoral vessels. Now, I'm yep. seeing the common femoral. Uh, I think we want to start a little bit more proximal than the end of our cannula, right? Just so that we can stay in that common femoral area? Well, I don't know if it's as uh, pertinent if we're going to be using a small diameter sheath. That's, you know, the common femoral artery is only about three centimeters long. So that's a lot of real estate. And you're putting a sheath that's, what, about you know roughly a centimeter in diameter into the artery. And, and that's going to be coming out in an angle and covering up the some of your area where you work. Um, I, I think getting distal runoff to the leg and either the, the common femoral is ideal because you got bigger diameter, obviously. But if you have to put it in the SFA, given the circumstances that you have, if you can see it before it dives off into Hunter's Canal, which is about, you know, not too far below the, the takeoff of the profunda artery, um, that's probably beneficial. So if you do have an issue and you have to cut down and ultimately deal with it, it makes it a little easier. But most of those, when you take them out, you can simply hold pressure uh, if they get better and you're able to to deal with it and it's not a big issue. So I, I think that's how I would skin the cat. Again, I'm not, I'm not operating on any randomized control data here. Right. But speaking right. from a perspective, you want as big an artery as you can afford to put the, ca- the catheter in that's not overly problematic given the other things that are occupying that real estate. Okay, that's 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 super helpful. So I don't have to be so worried about getting into the uh, into the common femoral artery. One of the things I do worry about, though, in this whole process is whether I would accidentally cannulate the profunda, go deep down in there. Uh, it's a possibility. That's why using ultrasound guidance makes life a little bit easier. You can track things down the SFA down into the Hunter's Canal and figure out. Okay, this is the SFA. It's not diving off laterally uh, in profunda territory. So some would argue that probably or I could see an argument for um, just kind of moving down south of where that bifurcation is and knowing that you're definitively in the SFA. Now, mm-hmm. healthy people will have collaterals from the profunda that you can take – you can probably live off of and not lose your limb. And some atherosclerotic patients have been living off those collaterals for a while. But I think what I would advocate would be always try to get into the SFA or the – um, if you're going to stick the common, make sure the catheter extends down to the SFA. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, and one of the things that we could probably use just in thinking about this is you could use the ultrasound with the wire in to make yep. sure that you're in. And well then, described. Uh, yeah. Go from there. 
Okay, so you touched on this as well. Now I've got the patient. The catheter is in. I hooked it up to the side port of the arterial catheter, and I've got some variable level of flow that's going through there based on how much flow is going through the whole catheter and the relative diameters of the two. Do we need to worry about sort of, I mean, because if we turn down the flow of the pump in general, we're also turning down the flow to the leg. Yep, absolutely. And you smaller catheters, you increase the risk for subsequent thrombosis of that smaller line. Um, obviously, heparinization plays a role in mitigating some of that. But um, I think what you start with, you need to now add and make sure that you have um, good serial examination and however you want to do that. The most ideal method would be to utilize at least a bedside Doppler, audible Doppler. Duplex can augment, but that's not something most people are going to leave at the bedside and check every hour. So being aware that that's a potential risk and uh, being ready to respond accordingly are, are important. But hopefully as you're starting the wean ECMO, now the patient is getting better does not have the profound kind of vasoactive, uh, hemodynamically compromising vasoconstriction to the leg. Um, but you got to be you got to be available to and, and understand those risks. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so monitoring Doppler ultrasound, warm foot. Does that help us, or is that kind of too late in the game? Well, I think it's a, you use all your senses here, right? So mm-hmm. touch, right, to feel if the foot's warm relative to the contralateral side. Mm-hmm. So if if you got the leg on the other side that doesn't have an arterial cannula in it, unless you have a balloon pump or something in it, that's use what's afforded you in terms of uh, comparison. Obviously, if it's cooler, it's worrisome. Uh, capillary refill is a thing that you can utilize to assess visually, obviously. And then the audible nature of the Doppler. So you really do have to use all your senses, except for taste, uh, in this to um, to evaluate limbs. Okay, so I think some take-home points here. We have to remember that that side port is small. And the flow through that is definitely diminished, especially because of the right angle nature of how it comes off. So you've got to be, even though you got the catheter in there, it doesn't necessarily mean you have good perfusion of the leg. So as Joe just said, we've got to make sure that we are maintaining perfusion and we can do that through a number of different things. You want to make sure based on your patient population that their collaterals or even their flow in general is adequate because a lot of our CPRs are people who are vasculopaths. So it's not going to be the same on everyone. One of the things that I think is more of a theoretic question I'd love to get your take on as well, Joe, is I, I've just wondered how how reperfusion plays a role in the overall survival of these patients. So in our facility, you know, we have a delay. It's not like they immediately get a reperfusion catheter. In Paris, they get it. They get it immediately. In in Minneapolis, uh, I mean. Not maybe not immediately, but within a very short period of time in the cath lab, Dimitri puts in a distal perfusion catheter. Yeah. My my fear is that some of our problems with cardiac stunning in the reperfusion phase after you get them on ECMO after they have return of spontaneous circulation is because of the buildup of the ischemia in that leg. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think it clearly there's a relationship there that's not well defined. But if you look at the patients who develop limb ischemia, now this may be chicken or the egg here, but the patients in most of the studies that describe these endpoints, uh, all of them that I've seen that describe the endpoint adequately, if you have malperfusion, you have increased race, risk of mortality. Now, is that a chicken or the egg thing? In other words, are they developing their they have worse overall perfusion globally and that results in increased risk of limb malperfusion 
or does the limb perfusion and subsequent potential reperfusion of this ischemic limb contribute to additional organ dysfunction and increase the risk for mortality? I don't know the answer to that. It would be a very ch challenging thing to study without looking at it a priori. But um, I do think it's an underappreciated, the reperfusion element, whether you're getting better and coming off pump and you're taking the cannulas out or you are continuing to kind of decompensate and the limb is now contributing to a greater degree, I think that that's an underappreciated certainly contributor to adverse outcome. I don't have any numbers to throw yet, but I think the studies are pretty consistent. Malperfusion and mortality go hand in hand. Yeah. Okay, so last thing, I think one of the things that is not obviously studied as much of this is, but it's not infrequent that we put two cannulas on the same side. So when we have a venous cannula in on the same side as the arterial catheter, at least in theory, you have a much higher risk of poor perfusion of that leg. And that probably plays even when you put in a distal perfusion catheter. So just be aware, more aware than even normal if you are putting the, the two ECMO catheters in on the same side. Yep, there's, there's good literature to suggest that you increase potentially, or I shouldn't say good literature, there's descriptions that it, uh, using the distal perfusion catheter does increase your risk for compartment syndrome. And so that is another element to add, um, particularly if you're having a venous cannula in that's going to impede outflow. So that's another element that you need to add. And, and these patients are intubated, sedated. The most common symptom of compartment syndrome is pain, mm. but that's going to be tough to assess in these patients. So if you feel those compartments are tense or you have a change in the distal pulse exam that you've been evaluating, you need to have higher in your index of suspicion that maybe you need to ask your either your vascular surgeons or orthopedists to evaluate the compartment pressures for compartment syndrome. This is awesome, Joe. Last thoughts, any other things you think the listeners would be interested in? No, you know, I think um, whatever you do, however you decide to do ECMO and combat all the risks thereof, and malperfusion is just one of them that are potential, you need to have a system for placement, and you need to have a system to catch these comp potential complications early before they come become more dire things. And I, I think it, it's not – I wouldn't say it's a common mistake, but it is a potential uh, devastating mistake if you don't have an adequate protocol for evaluating the limbs when they get to their ICU environment or as you continue to pursue with ECMO. And you've got to do that consistently. You've got to do it frequently, and you've got to do it thoroughly. All right, and with that, let's wrap it up. That's Joe DeBose, vascular surgeon phenom. What a great interview. So much good information in there, so much food for thought. Uh, warning, in two days, three days, I'm going to put up the next episode, and this is with Chris Couch, a critical care doc from Dallas, who is going to give you some even very interesting food for thought on this distal perfusion catheter from someone who's not a vascular surgeon, someone like you and me who is putting these patients on and now we're trying to decide what do we do with this leg and how quickly do we need to do it? Chris Couch will give us his opinion a couple days later. So with that, Zach Shiner, ADECMO, signing out. <laughs>